This message by Pastor Eric Ludy was given at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. As a ministry, we desire to see the return of strong, triumphant Christianity in the church today. We make these messages available free of charge for the purpose of strengthening the body of Christ and igniting bold faith in the hearts of believers around the world. The ministry of Ellerslie is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. If you have been personally impacted by Ellerslie's messages, please consider partnering with us as we build world changers for Jesus Christ through gospel-centered discipleship. Visit ellerslie.com to learn more. Now, here's Pastor Eric Ludy. And so last week we talked about, in a sense, the mechanics of faith. This last week... I tell you what, the outflow of it was so profound in my mind. I had, I think this last week, five or six emergency meetings where I had to cancel something. I was like, I'm so sorry. I have something that's an emergency and I have to get to. It was a very, very intense week full of such wonder and grace. So in hindsight, it's always sometimes hard to say it's full of wonder and grace until you get to the end of it. But wow, do you, if you remember how I finished last week's message, I gave you one of my key phrases in my spiritual life, and it's watch what my God will do. Monday morning, something happened in my life, and I whispered heavenward, watch what my God will do. It was that intense. And it's still, it's now one of my you know, key moments in my spiritual history to remember I did watch what God would do. And it was profound this last week. I have been invigorated in a dimension of my life that I didn't realize I needed to be invigorated in. Have you ever had that where you sometimes, here's what I'm going to liken it to. Have you ever had a blow-up mattress? And you blow it up and it's, it's like firm. And then, you know, you sleep on it for a few days, whether you're camping or whatever, and it gets a little squishy. Uh, that's like our spiritual life. It's like, hey, did you put air in it? Yes, I put air in it. And yet, that air sort of slowly leaks out. And so you need to sort of Remember to refill it. It does not mean that you didn't have it full. It just means that it leaks. And there's certain things in life that demand a constancy of attentiveness, your digestive system being one of them. If you don't eat regularly, you're going to get gaunt. You're going to lose strength and energy. And the same thing is true with certain spiritual attributes. There's certain truths that if they're not exercised regularly, you grow stale or you grow dull or you grow flat. In them, And we need to fatten those things up afresh. The message today is an area where I unwittingly, unbeknownst to me, have grown flat. And yet if you were to bring it up, it's like, amen, amen. And then I sort of think about it and allow the Spirit of God to touch me. Like, wow, how did I lose that? Because it's not that I intellectually don't agree with it. It's that practically, functionally in my life, it's just sort of lost air. And I haven't blown into it for a while. And I, here's my assumption that if I'm struggling with that, oftentimes you may be too. That we can just let air out of our life. We were talking on the way back from a workout on Friday about the certain things in our life that sometimes need to be rekindled or we need to freshly visit, like CPR training. I don't know, it just came up uh, on the way back. And I said, yeah, you know, I had CPR training. I don't remember a thing about it. Except for the fact that, you know, how to put your hands and that it involves some uh, mouth action. And, you know, to me, you don't want me being the one to try and save you, even though I went through CPR class. You see, if you don't regularly attend to the knowledge base of that, you have this faint ghost-like understanding of something, but you really forgot how to do it. Prayer. 
Many of us in here understand the mechanics of prayer. We know how to put our hands in the right position. We know it involves certain things. But when it really comes down to it, it's like it's grown flat in our life. And for me, I pray every day. So it's not prayer itself that I'm going to address today. It's a certain type of prayer. It's a prayer of faith. And there's a difference between a prayer, or we could call a spiritual wheeze, where you're like, (laughs) and you're like, God, just get me out of this situation. God, help me pass that test. God, I need money. In other words, it's not a spiritual wheeze. It's a prayer of faith. And so last week we talked about faith. I want to now take that and stick it into prayer. And like I'm saying, this is a foundational point for us as a body. This isn't meant to be like a lesson that you've never heard. This is bringing us back to something that has rallied us in the past. This body has come together and prayed with faith for years. And what I don't want is for us to grow flat in it. So I'm going to get out our little air compressor and and we're going to stick some fresh air into that mattress. We're going to take out the dumbbells and once again reinvigorate the muscles. Get the circulatory system going in this one area. The effects... hmm, Well, watch what God will do. Striking the ground, a reminder to add audacity to our prayer lives. So for those of you that uh, know the stories of the Old Testament, this may give it away. I always like to hold something back. So striking the ground, I don't know if that that, uh, triggers any thoughts for you, but I'm going to build on one story, but I'm going to take a while to get to that one story. A reminder to add audacity to our prayer lives. So the key thing that I want to talk about is not prayer in general, but adding audacity to our prayer. In a simple sense, that is the concept of the prayer of faith. So this is going back to before Ellerslie started. I don't know. I think we may have been meeting on the south side of the campus in the middle room where now EPA uh, gathers, and we didn't yet have the north side of the campus So we may have. I don't remember uh, totally, but this is before we even had our first semester. So December 9th, 2008, I used to have a blog back then that was called the Bravehearted Blog, ironically. And uh, you see contributor, Eric Ludy. I actually just copied and pasted this from it. Title, it was called Audacious Faith. So here way back 10 years ago, because when I say how long we've been doing this, I would say 10 years. That's actually how long. So here right 10 years ago, and like one month and a few days change, Uh, this is written, so I'm just going to read it through. It's almost the whole blog post. The idea of spiritual audacity has really been on my mind over the past couple weeks. My latest podcast is entitled, Now That's Audacity. And here I go again rambling on about it, but isn't that what a blog is for, to be able to air your thoughts without a publisher coming along and trying to edit them, which, by the way, is a uh, deep-seated issue in my life. (laughs) First, let me define audacity for you out of the official December 2008 Ludi Dictionary. Audacity. Absolute, ridiculous trust that when you step out and do crazy things for the glory of the Almighty King, God will come through for you. For instance, when you stand up against nine-foot-tall giants without any armor on, your skinny little vulnerable body, and you walk out in the field of battle without a sword to fight with him, fight him with, God helps you make an absolute fool of the growling, mocking man-beast warrior. I've been gaining a measure of audacity lately. Not a lot, just a little. Sort of like a small blob of honey in the middle of my toast. It's enough to make me realize I need a lot more. And it's also caused me to do a lot of thinking about why this attribute of the Christian life has gone missing in our modern day. Audacity is one of the main ingredients in the whole notion of faith. Without it, faith just doesn't really work. It sort of mopes around like a toothless, declawed lion. 
Just do a quick perusal of the Bible and you will see this crazy audacity all over the place. Here's a quick top 10 list of some of Leslie's and my favorite biblical moments of bewildering audacity. So I'm going to do the countdown. Audacious moment number 10. Caleb, at 80 years of age, claiming Hebron, the mountain of the giants, as his inheritance in the land of promise. Not only did he want it, which is audacious enough, but he personally led the battle formation that climbed the mountain and destroyed the giant men that lived there. Audacious moment number nine, Samson picking a fight with a thousand Philistines and using a donkey's jawbone to destroy every last one of them. Audacious moment number eight, Joab climbing up the gutter of Jebus ahead of all the troop of David and being the first to jump in amongst a throng of enemy soldiers to strike the mocking Jebusite. Now that's brash. Audacious moment number seven, Elisha, when told by the mighty prophet Elijah to ask for anything and it shall be done, Elisha asked for a double portion of the power and anointing of Elijah. Audacious moment number six, David, while still a youngster, running after a lion while it had food in its mouth, grabbing its mane, breaking its jaw, and gaining back his lamb. Who in the right mind would ever do such a thing? Audacious moment number five, Beniah, jumping into a pit with a lion on a snowy day and killing the riled beast. Audacious moment number four, David and Abishai sneaking into the camp of Saul at night while he was surrounded by his mightiest warriors and brashly stealing his spear and water crews. That's, not, that's just not audacious, that's hilarious. Audacious moment number three, David going into hand-to-hand combat with Goliath, the greatest warrior of his generation, without armor and without a sword. And he doesn't enter the fray with a sheepish anxiety. He sprints with ferocity at this man-beast and kills him in a matter of seconds. Most of us, I don't think, truly realize how amazing this scene was. It was the epitome of audacity. Audacious moment number two, Jesus deliberately choosing to stay away from Bethany until Lazarus had not only died but had been rotting in the tomb for four days. It's then he shows up and has the guts to say, roll away the stone, Lazarus, come forth. Audacious moment number one, God, in open mockery of the power of darkness, sends forth his son into hostile enemy territory as a helpless little baby. God defeats sin, death, and Satan while gagged, bound, stripped naked, and nailed to two pieces of wood. The entirety of the gospel is the audacity of God to actually die a criminal's death and openly mock the powers of this world as a helpless little lamb of sacrifice. It's truly amazing. It's sort of hard to only pick 10 because there are so many juicy stories of audacity packed into the pages and stories of Scripture. For instance, I'm not even including Joshobium fighting off 800 Philistines all by his lonesome. Elijah picking a fight with 400 prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. The three mightiest breaking through the Philistine garrison in Bethlehem to get King David a drink of water from the well. King Josiah romping through the land of Israel, turning to dust anything and everything that was an abomination to his God. Peter commanding a man who has withered legs to stand up and start walking. Or Paul, after being smashed to death with stones, rising back to life and heading right back into the city that just stoned him. The stories are simply amazing. So many of us these days are waltzing through our Christian life without showing even a scrap of these heavenly guts. Because for many of us, we are afraid that if we step out and really trust our God in a specific fashion, that we will be disappointed and therefore disillusioned. However, faith is built through the practice of audacity. David ran after a hungry lion and learned that God backed him up. Then he lunged after a hungry bear. Then when the giant stood in the valley of Elah, when he was confident and ready to whip out a whole new batch of audacity for the occasion. Today, the church is filled with something Jesus termed oligopistos, which translates into our language as little faith. In other words, we fret, we tremble, and we are paralyzed to inaction when the enemy boasts. We believe that God is there. We just don't have any confidence that he is interested in championing our cause in this particular situation. But God is our champion, and he is waiting for someone in this generation to trust him with a Davidic swagger, an Elijah-esque confidence, and a Paul-like indomitable assurance. Little faith won't get the job done in the church today. We are in need of the real thing known as pistis, faith. 
If you find yourself trembling today before a boasting Goliath, whether it be lust, fear, anger, debt, frustration, despair, suffocating pride, or something else just as vile, just know that our God is in the business of bringing such giants down to the earth with a thud. We as Christians have been pushed around long enough. It's high time that we got our swagger back and started acting with a Christ-confident audacity. So we're going to start with this as a premise. What is prayer? If any of you have been trained in through our Ellerslie training, you know we start with this. We meet early at like 5.30 in the morning, and we always start our training in prayer with what is prayer. And a lot of us think that prayer is merely just you know, sort of this thing where we come to God and ask him for the things that we need. Prayer is not saying that that can't be a dimension of prayer, but prayer is so much, so much more significant than that. You see, when you have faith, what is taking place inside of your soul is you're seeing another realm as real. So in other words, a lot of people in this world that don't live by faith in Christ or faith in God Almighty is they don't see this other realm. They don't recognize that there is something real outside of what we can see. And God owns that territory. This is God's kingdom. And it is real. It is tangible. Faith sees it. And the language of that kingdom has been given us in an actual tangible way. And it's called the word of God in text, which is known as the Bible. And so when you read the Bible, you are literally seeing the realities of this interaction between realms. And what God says is, I want to get all that is up there down here. You see, when Christ died on the cross, he said something. He said, it is finished. Now look around you. Does it look finished? So some of us could say, like, oh, Jesus, I'm not exactly sure if you were telling the truth there. Because it doesn't look finished. It's finished in heaven. That which is needed down here was accomplished by Christ. It is finished. Everything that is needed for your salvation, the salvation of every single person around you, has been accomplished. Here's where we come in. The people of faith. What we do is we reach up into the heavenlies and grab a hold of his finished work and tug it to this earth. That's prayer. You're not just praying for something you want. You're praying for what he did to come to this earth, for his realities to be realized in this called the human body, our relationships, this world. And so that is the work of prayer, which is the extension of the work of faith. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Well, there's a good prayer. That's the model. Prayer is part of it. So I'm going to introduce you to a couple words here, fickle being one of them. Uh, it's an adjective. Uh, you see that in the Latin, vacilo, uh, which is the concept of to vacillate, to go from one side to the other. Uh, Hebrews, to stagger. So remember when it talks about he staggered not at the promises of God through unbelief? He was not fickle. And so faithfulness is not fickleness. You do not uh, go wavering. Look at the definitions. Wavering and constant, unstable of, of a changeable mind, irresolute, not firm in opinion or purpose, capricious, not fixed or firm, liable to change or vicissitude as a fickle state. You see, when you think of God, you have to understand God as he is. Otherwise, prayer doesn't work. Audacity in your praying cannot work if you think God changes. If you think that God is sort of random and that he's fickle, and that he staggers or he vacillates. It's like, oh, I promise you this. And the next day he's like, I don't know if I really want to do that for you. Have you ever had it where someone sticks out their hand to shake yours and then you reach out thinking, oh, well, they're inviting me to shake their hand. And then that person pulls it back. It, when I was in, I don't know, it was junior high. It's really embarrassing to say this. It's gonna, for those of you that are my age, you'll remember this. You stick your hand out and then you reach out to take it and the person would do, psych. 
You guys remember that? Uh, okay, so a lot of us think that that's God. That God's like, hey, I want to help you. Hey, I want to help you. And then we reach out, and he's like, psych. And we're like, oh, no. And the concept was left hanging. Hey, you left me hanging, man. You left me hanging. God doesn't leave us hanging. When he promises, he's good for his promise. He is not fickle. Here's the other word, capricious. That concept of pulling back, that's capriciousness. In other words, you're acting like you're a friend. Come on, come on, trust me. Oh, gotcha. That is not God. He is not capricious. Given to sudden and unaccountable changes of mood or behavior. Fickle, inconstant, changeable, variable, unstable, mercurial, volatile, erratic, vacillating, irregular, inconsistent, fitful, and arbitrary. If I were to dig down inside of you and get your perception of God and bring it to the surface and evaluate it, Many of us struggle with the idea that God is capricious. When in actuality, the word of God makes it very clear, he is not this way. The devil is this way, but God isn't. Your prayer life hinges on a clear understanding of the nature of God. Faith needs to rest in something. You know what that something is? Something that is faithful. It is full of all that faith can rest in. It is solid. It is unchanging. It is fixed. And when it says something to you, you can take it to the bank. That's true. God Almighty, this is just a little summary of what the scripture says about him. With whom is no variation. There's no changing. Neither shadow of turning. He is not a man that he should lie. Neither the son of man that he should repent. He doesn't change. He has said... Shall he not do it? Or has he spoken and shall he not make it good? He does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Fact. Fickle or faithful. You see, if you have a fickle God in your mind, you will not stake your weight. You will not place your confidence in him. You will hesitate when it comes to a key moment of decision. But when you know that your God can hold you up, when you know that he will back his promises, where do you put all your weight? You lean everything on him. The word amen is what many would consider, along with the word Coca-Cola, as the best-known word in human speech. Isn't it fascinating that a Hebrew word known as amen is considered by many, if not the world over, and any literary critics, whether they be Christian, non-Christian, Jewish or not, to be literally the best-known word in existence. And what's funny is you all know the word, but understand what it means? Most of us have no clue. Now, I've done multiple messages. I think three messages on amen. And I think Walter Willis even gave a message on amen once. So we've had like four messages on amen in here. So we should be resident experts on the topic. But you know how most of us, when we think about the word amen, it's just sort of a period to a prayer. It's like, have you ever had the thought that if you don't say amen at the end of a prayer, it doesn't count in heaven? That actually isn't the way it's, it's not like some period or exclamation mark. It's a statement of faith. The reason you would say amen is as an adverbial declaration. This will be done. That's actually what it would mean. So the Hebrew word amen means verily, truly, amen, so be it. The Greek amen Firm, verily, amen, truly, so be it, may it be fulfilled. You know that when the Greek takes this word, it doesn't change it. You know, most Greek is taking the Hebrew and translating it to Greek, but not with amen. 
it makes it through. You know, when we take the Greek and translate it into English, what do we take? Amen. For whatever reason, we don't change this word. It's just Hebrew to Greek to English and all around the world. It's an important word. So it's an adverbial declaration, a strange part of speech, in other words, where it's a description of something, and, but it's to help us understand how true it is fully. So I could say something, and you could respond and go, fully. That would be weird, but you could say truly. In other words, you're, the inner part of who you are is like resonating and saying, that is true. That's what amen is. So that's what you, you hear it in certain churches, not ours oftentimes, where the preacher is like working hard, you know, breaking a sweat, and someone will go, amen. All right, our church gets a little, uh, you know, uncomfortable with such things. Amen. <laughs> that's the only way to get an amen is to put down our church and then people will amen it. <laughs> Absolutely, undoubtedly, completely, certainly. Listen to this one. That is completely and utterly trustworthy. He is completely and utterly trustworthy. That is what prayer is. Prayer is an amen statement of the soul. I am coming to you, Lord, because I know you are trustworthy. It's amen. That's what it is. We don't just finish our, our prayers with it. The whole prayer is amen. We're just clarifying at the very end. By the way, this was an amen prayer. This wasn't one of those wishy-washy prayers. This is an amen prayer. This is a prayer that literally gushes out of my inner man out of faith. I know that God is faithful. I know that he is true. I know that he will do as he says he will do. He is not a man that he should lie. Has he not promised and will he not do it? I stagger not at these promises of God through unbelief. But I root myself in faith knowing fully, confidently, he will in fact do it. That is what has grown flat in Eric Ludi. It's not that I don't agree with everything I just said. It's that Eric just needs some wind back inside of that one dimension of my soul to not be passive with my praying. Oh God, God, you just, please, keep my head up above the waters so I can keep breathing. The weights are heavy, but I know your grace is sufficient. And Lord, I just pray that you will somehow carry me through this instead of, whoom, my God is able. His grace is sufficient. He does not leave his children orphans. He will give us everything we need. Pull our swords, Jesus Christ. Draw them out of our sheath. May we fight like we ought to as children of God. The amen prayer. The amen God. You see, an amen prayer is to an amen God. Know therefore the Lord thy God, he is God. The faithful God. You know what that is in the Hebrew? Why they translate it, I'm not exactly sure. It's to help us out, right? But what that is, is the amen, God. That word faithful is amen. It's, no, no, he truly will do it. He is the God who cannot lie. He is the God who cannot help but agree with his promises and perform them. He is the amen God. Know therefore, the Lord thy God, he is God. He is the amen God, which keeps covenant and mercy with them that love him and keeps his commandments to a thousand generations. So the maturing of a prayer life. First, you learn to say amen at the conclusion of your prayers. And then you grow up. And what do you grow up to? Then you realize how to have amen be the basis of all your praying. 
your soul is saying, amen, God. Amen. You are faithful. And what comes out? Prayer. You see, most of us give our prayer out of destitution. We give our praying out of need. We don't give our praying out of amen confidence. So it's not that we don't have faith, we just have small faith. Do you believe God answers prayer? Yes, I do. Do you believe God will care for you in your time of need? Yes, I just hope he comes quickly. We're weak and feeble in our praying. Instead of, my God is faithful, so I pray. You see, it's a different orientation. It's not that the first is wrong, that we finish with the plea, God, prove yourself faithful. That's what amen means to most of us. God, prove yourself faithful as opposed to God is faithful. You see, there's a difference. There's a distinction between the two. And it does not mean our immature praying is wrong. It's just let's grow up. Let's allow God to show himself to us so that we would be rooted in confidence. When the amen is the inspiration and the energy behind your praying, then audacity can make its way into your praying. You see, when you have the amen as the motivation, what do you start praying? You pray with audacity. You pray what I'm going to call God-sized prayers. You see, when you know that God is the one that is answering, how does he answer? In a God way. So what do you pray for? God-sized things. You know that God-sized things are different than Eric-sized things? I'm a big dreamer, too. I can come up with all sorts of things. If we just sat down and, and you were to say, Eric, give me some vision, give me some dreams of what the church of Christ could become in this generation. All right, that sounds fun. No matter how I dream, no matter how big my ideas are, he goes exceedingly and abundantly beyond that. So what we need to begin to do is not just pray out of our own intellect, our own understanding, but allow God-sized prayers to fill us. And those come from our understanding of seeing him. It's the amen that we see. Truly, he is able. He will do it. And then out of that begins to come forth God-sized prayers. So audacity. So here's a simple definition for us. It's not like the dictionary definition, but you'll get the idea. It's the logical action of someone who believes God to be amen. If you really believed that God was faithful, that he would do it if you asked, that he's begging you to ask, and you say, come on, ask me. Come on, I'm ready to do a God-sized thing in your life. And you know that he will do a God-sized thing in your life if you ask, and you ask with understanding that he is amen, what would you do? Well, you'd do this. You would have a whole bunch of that going on. You would have audacity. This is just a logical conclusion. If it's true that God is who he says he is, that he cannot lie, and that he's promised, if you will ask, to do exceedingly abundantly above all you ask or think, what would you start doing? You'd start doing some audacious praying. And that's what I'm pointing at here. I beseech you, therefore, brethren. Now, Paul is an entire argument leading into this. But he is building to a climactic point saying, he gave everything for you. He asks for you to lay down everything for him. He's basically pointed out the work of Christ. This has been accomplished on your behalf. Now, in conclusion, I beseech you, as a result of all of this argument, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. In other words, there's a reasonable response. Now, the word logical actually flows out of this word for reasonable. Logikos. This is your logical response. A plus B equals C. Give him everything. 
Lay your life down. This is the logical response. The logical response of seeing the amen God is amen prayers. And that's, if I'm going to describe amen prayers in a simple way, it's audacious praying. It's God-sized praying. The audacious ask. Without it, prayer just isn't prayer. And now this is for me the gentle correcting of the Holy Spirit in me this week is just to sort of say, Eric, you know, your prayers, they stink. And it, it doesn't mean that they're not real prayers or that I don't have real faith. It's that they're not matching up with who God is. It's like, Eric, is that the best you think I can do? You ever notice when you've gone through a difficult season, oftentimes you're willing to accept even marginal things just to get out? It's just like, hey, let's compromise. If I could just get out of this challenge, this difficulty, I'll take this. And so you start negotiating instead of holding high to who God is. God's God. The ask. You know that God actually asks us to ask? Ask, and it shall be given you. Now, I'm just giving you a sample. I, I mean, I, we could fill up the whole message. I have messages on just ask, the doctrine of ask. Ask, and it shall be given you. And all things whatsoever you shall ask in prayer, believing, you shall receive. So we're supposed to ask. Now, I didn't go into very many scriptures on it, but trust me when I say Jesus himself asks us to ask so many times. It is without question a very clear doctrine in scripture that we're supposed to ask. Most of us are impaired in our asking because we feel presumptuous. I don't know where we get this notion. I know it doesn't come from God because the scriptures say, ask. And yet many of us will be like, well, I don't want to bother him. I don't want to presume that my ask is even right. Have you ever had that statement? It's like, well, I don't want to ask until I know for certain that that's what God wants me to ask. Here's what I would say. It's far safer to just ask and let God correct your asking. Here's the way I oftentimes have described it. He steers our asking when we ask in faith. In other words, if I demand, that's a different thing. It's like, God, I want this on my terms, my exact way, instead of us asking, saying, God, this is the best I know. We don't really know what to pray, as it says in Romans 8. But the Spirit of God, the Greek word is big, he overshadows us like a little kid playing putt-putt golf. A little kid has no clue how to hit that ball, and yet God says, hit the ball. He says, well, I don't know. Well, grab the, grab the uh, club. Oh, I was starting to panic. I forgot the word club. And he... It says the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. And he does the work. He takes our groan, our inarticulate, I have no idea, God, what to say. And he turns it into a hole in one. That's God's business. Our business is to do the asking. Our business is to grab the club and swing it. Our job isn't to be the perfect one. His job is to do that. Our job is to agree with him and to say, God, I trust that you are able to do this, so I'm going to do my part, and that's ask. Who are we asking? Well, the one who asks us to ask and promises that he will answer if we do ask. It's the amen God. That's who's, we're not just asking someone who's already like, hey, what are you asking me for? It's sort of like someone coming to you and giving counsel and saying, no, go to the governor and ask. You're like, well, the governor doesn't like me. I don't care. Go ask. Well, there's no guarantee that when you ask the governor and he doesn't like you, that he's going to agree with you. However, God is the very one himself going, hey, could you come and ask me? He's like, well, I don't want to, you know, take up your time. I, I, I don't want to presume. He's like, hey, I'm asking you to presume. 
I'm asking you to come ask, and I guarantee you that when you do come and ask, my answer is yes. Okay, now, for the subtleties of that, for those of you that have asked and didn't get a yes, you're like, wait a minute, there are yeses that come in different packages than you would maybe expect. I call it the two-sided ticket. I don't know if you've ever heard me teach on that, but when you come to DIA and you pull up to the parking lot, it goes, printing ticket, please wait, and you get your ticket. And so you put in your request, like, God, could you do this? And out comes the ticket, and it is blank. God's silent. Have you ever had that? Or how about it comes out and it says no. If you get a blank one or a no, it's a two-sided ticket, guys. Turn it over. And what it says on the other side is thanks for asking, but I'm frying bigger fish in your life. If I answered that, you would realize that isn't what I'm after. I'm doing something far greater. My great illustration for that is the disciples in the boat. Water's filling it up and Jesus is sleeping. What are the disciples asking? Could you wake up and help us bail water? The creator of the universe is being asked, just as he said, ask. Jesus instead finally seems to wake up and is doing something far greater. He doesn't bail water for him. He basically says, no. Can you believe that? He says, ask. He says that, yes, he's going to say yes every time they ask, and yet he says no. But it's because he's answering yes to a far greater prayer. And he calms winds and waves. He's still answering. Even though it appears to be a no, God answers yes. Two-sided ticket. Just turn it over. If you have a silent God, if you have a no, turn it over. There's something greater that God is doing in your life because he promises to answer. Ask and it shall be given you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asks receives. Fact. And he that seeks finds. Fact. And to him that knocks it shall be opened. Fact. Or what man is there of you whom, if his son asked for bread, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Father which is in heaven give good things to them that ask him? Why can we ask? Because he has made a way unto the throne of grace where the asking is made and the answers are found. You see, apart from Christ, we don't have the luxury of the ask. But in Christ Jesus, because he has made a way, in and through his death on the cross, his shed blood, when we believe in Christ, we enter into Christ. And Christ then ascends to the right hand of the Father. And so we pray in that position. It's called praying in the name of Jesus. You're praying in a position. When you pray, where are you praying? You're praying from a position of confidence because he says yes to Jesus. Jesus has access to him. Where are you? What's your position? You're in Christ. Therefore, you have access unto the throne room of grace. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way, which he has consecrated for us through the veil that is to say his flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. For he is faithful that promised. How can we be assured he will answer, that he will answer? Because he has promised and he cannot lie. You see, for your soul, when the devil asks that question, that's the devil's question. How can we be assured he will answer? How can I know? Well, because he has promised. 
Who promised? God. Can God lie? No, he can't. So the one who has promised you cannot lie. That's how you know. If he says he'll say yes, he'll say yes. If he says ask, hey, come, ask. He will answer. It is impossible for God to lie. He is faithful that promised. And being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. Are you fully persuaded of that? So when we ask, how should we ask? Well, here's the two ingredients that please God. Faith that God is sure to answer and delights to answer. So you need faith. You need that amen mixed in. That you know that truly God will do it. That's an important aspect. You see, if you don't have that and that's what you're struggling with today, that's what you go after. You need to have a clear sighting of God afresh. He is God Almighty who has spoken. You know that he didn't need to reveal himself to us? I mean, for all practical purposes, he could have just condemned us. We could have been condemned without any understanding of any of these spiritual realities. We are guilty. We have violated the nature of our God. And he has every right legally to cast us off. Instead, he loves us and he pursues us. And get this, he reveals himself to us. He's the one that chose to do that. It's not like we extracted it out of him. He gave it. And what did he give? He gave us understanding of the fact that he cannot lie. And he has promised. He gave us promises. He didn't need to, but he did. And he says, grab a hold of those promises. Grab them with faith. They are sure. They are solid. I will never fail you. And what's our response? Amen. That's the faith response. I see it, God. You see, we cannot say amen unless we have been spiritually awakened. The spirit of God works in us, and what does it create? And amen is what it creates. I see it. God, you are real. God, you are true. God, your word is true. You did do this for me. And he says, say it. Amen. Amen. My soul says amen to the living God. My soul says amen to scripture. My soul says amen to the cross. My soul says amen to the resurrected Christ. My soul says amen to the fact that he sits at the right hand of majesty. My soul says amen to the fact that he is coming again for us. I stand firm in the realities of what he has said. Amen. Amen. Truly. He has done it. He is faithful. He is true. Second, well, if you're going to pray, how should you pray? Well, you need to have faith, but you also need to have God-sized requests. Don't do the little mealy-mouthed human sort of praying. Start praying God-sized prayers. I mean, when I, I'm not much of a warrior in the natural sense. I, I've, we've, we've joked over the years of what it would be like if Eric got backed into a corner uh, in a back alley and there were 10 Navy SEALs up against me, and, and I've said, who would you uh, place money on? The 10 Navy SEALs or Eric Ludi? Now, hey, I'm, I'm a scrapper, okay? I'd put it at least get one black eye in there on some guy, but the likelihood is Eric is going down. Okay, now, I don't care which warrior you pick. Let's pick David, okay? Great warrior, right? And you surround him in a back alley with 10 Navy SEALs. Who are you betting on? Now, here's what's funny is as I say that, you're like, well, it's David, and he's sort of this mystical uh, character that nothing can happen to. And so, however, in the natural sense, you would not pick a small guy. I don't, it never says anything about David nor his mighty men that they had big muscles. You know that Samson is never described as a massive guy? 
If he had huge muscles, it would have been pretty obvious what his secret of strength was. Instead, they're like, Delilah, could you trick him into telling us? If the guy had biceps the size of my body, it would be pretty obvious why he could defeat anyone. It's possible that he was thinner than I am. It's like, what is that guy's secret of strength? So, we need to begin to pray in agreement with the God of that Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. You ever read this book? God is powerful. God is able. In fact, God seems to specialize in circumstances when all goes dark. I don't think God actually minds. In fact, sometimes you wonder if he actually bumps into the light switch and turns it off. It's like, oops, oh no, oh no. Hey, what are you gonna do out there? The nation of Israel is backed to the Red Sea. All goes dark. This is a bad situation. You got the most powerful military force coming against you, and they're piping hot mad. You got mountains on one side, mountains on the other, and what do you have over here? A sea. You got a whole nation full of women and children and brick makers. No weapons. You got no weapons. You got some sheep and goats, maybe. Wield those. You have nothing. Do you, do you agree that this is a good uh, situation to maybe panic? Well, they do, by the way, except for Moses. Moses is thinking about an amen God. He's like, truly, God, you're able. Truly, God, you do not deliver us from Egypt only to have us die here. He's thinking like a Christian ought to think. He's thinking with faith. And when it gets dark, that's when God does the bigger things. You see... Most of our life, God is working in supernatural ways. We don't see it. And we want to avoid the Red Sea as if it is a plague. God, don't bring me there. And yet, it is the privilege of privileges to be led to the impossible straits. You know what Moses, according to Josephus, reasoned in that situation? He knew God was going to get them out of it, but he just didn't know how. So this is what he said. He said, God is perfectly able. It is no better than madness to despair in the providence of God now. This is Josephus' account. So he's either going to make these mountains flat so that we can get away, or he's going to fly us as an entire nation out of here. That was one of his options, by the way, which would have been really cool. (laughs) Or he's going to cause this sea to part and we'll walk across on dry land. God chose option three. The point being... Is that how you approach your Red Sea? Do you have that sort of audacity? Oh, he'll flatten the mountain. Oh, he'll fly me out of here. I don't know how many of you have ever seen someone just fly away. I mean, these are not normal things. I don't think a, a, a sea had ever been parted up to that point. I don't think mountains had ever been laid flat. And you follow me? I mean, hey, there's no precedent for any of this. Do you need a precedent or do you need an amen God? You have an amen God who is perfectly capable of dealing with your situation that you face right now. So just as much as Eric needs a fresh compressor wind in my soul to bring me from praying pathetic prayers to mighty prayers of faith. That's what I want you to have too. You see, I don't give you that compressor wind. This is the spirit of God. This is his truth. And when that truth is grasped by the inner man and we start shouting, amen, In our inner man, we rise up from a fetal position into a warrior stance. 
We are ready to engage the devil. We are not afraid of what the devil can do to us. No weapon fashioned against us shall prosper. Greater is he that is in us than that nonsense that is coming against us. We are men and women that cry in the depths of our being, amen. Amen. God will do it. And all things whatsoever you shall ask in prayer, believing you shall receive. Whatsoever, that's a lot of territory. Should you be asking for the Ferrari? Should you be asking for the mansion? I mean, whatsoever. You see, there's, God also delineates if you ask according to the flesh, he's saying no. But when you ask according to his spirit, when you ask in agreement with his nature, when you ask in agreement with his will, what he is desiring, the answer is yes. You see, in the Old Testament, he says, there's the land. He even defines it. He says, on the far side of Jordan, you know, you have the, uh, you know, the Great Sea, and you have, uh, what's that other, is it the Nile? What, what was the other, uh, River Euphrates that is over there? He gives the framework for it. And he says, this territory is your boundary. Wheresoever your foot shall tread in that territory, I give it to you. Well, that's defined. It's the same with us. He says, ask whatsoever. In, in what territory? The territory of promise. You see, God has promised us. He's given us exceedingly uh, amazing promises that if we simply stick our foot of faith and say amen, that that is for the body of Christ. It's not just anything out there, any whim that you have. I'd like to float right now. And God's saying, why? Uh, because I'd like to look cool? He goes, no. In other words, God is not playing with this whole thing. He's very serious. But if we agree with God and what we are doing is born of his spirit for his purposes, for his glory, he's an amen God. The whatsoever territory, that's what I just described for you, the pattern of the ask in the Old Testament. So Elijah's parting is an amazing picture of this. So to build up the story, because I'm going to have to go through it very quickly, Elijah, it's known amongst all the prophets that Elijah is like going away. It's very mysterious. Now, if you know the story, he was actually taken up by God. We never hear that Elijah actually died a mortal death. Okay, weird stuff, right? And so he's taken up in a chariot of fire. Okay, uh, but they know that he's leaving, and Elisha's concerned about this. Elisha's sort of the one that's going to take over. He's like, uh, Elijah, could you sort of hang out? Could, you, could I hang out with you? I don't really want you just leaving. And so they cross the Jordan into uh, the, the wilderness territory, and... Sure enough, it's time for Elijah to go. And so this is what takes place. And so it was when they had crossed over that Elijah said to Elisha, ask. It's interesting because of the parallel here. He's taken up into the sky. Who, can you think of someone else that was taken up into the sky in front of his predecessors, his disciples? Hmm. Sounds a little like Jesus, doesn't it? Yeah, this is an incredible parallel. And so it was when they had crossed over that Elijah said to Elisha, ask. That sounds sort of like what Jesus said to us. What may I do for you before I am taken away from you? Elisha said, please let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. Now, I've thought this through many times over. If I was asked to ask, in fact, I've driven down the road, I've done this exercise many times, sort of like the Solomon moment where God talks to us all of us, says, ask. It's like, what would I ask for? And then I think of a whole bunch of things I shouldn't ask for. I'm like, okay, I don't want to, that didn't count, God. Those were just thoughts, probably from the devil, Okay. <laughs> but I don't want to waste my one ask, okay? This is one. I got one ask. I mean, maybe he could say, I could say, could I ask for three things? Uh, and then could I have three asks? Uh, but God, give me a little moment here to think this through. And what's funny is I always land 
on something, when I, when I take the time, because I'm always hearkening back to this story. This story is really hard for me, though, because what Elisha asks for sounds rude. Because what he is asking for, think about, if you were to think of the most powerful prophet in the Old Testament, this guy brought fire down from heaven, which ate up the altar on Mount Carmel, destroyed 400 prophets of Baal. He literally stood single-handedly, it seems, against an entire evil empire. This guy was raised dead people to life, was fed supernaturally from a raven. I mean, this is extraordinary stuff. And Elisha has the audacity to say, I want double that. Oh, I don't even know that double exists. He asks for double, and that's like hard for me because it feels presumptuous. Like, ah. Now listen, please let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. So he said, well, you've asked a hard thing. Even Elijah is sort of thinking, oh. Uh, Nevertheless, if you see me when I am taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if not, it shall not be so. Then it happened as they continued on and talked that suddenly a chariot of fire appeared with horses of fire and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. Elisha saw it. And he cried out, my father, my father, the chariot of Israel and its horsemen. So he saw him no more and he took hold of his own clothes and tore them into two pieces. He also took up the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood by the banks of the Jordan. So the parallel, first of all, he sees it, which means he receives it. And it's interesting because even in the chronicle of the the miracles of Elisha is he has exactly double the miracles of recorded miracles that Elijah has minus one. And if you know the story, uh, after he's dead and he's in his grave, sepulcher, uh, then these two guys are running around with a dead body. They don't know where to throw it. And they throw it into a sepulcher of Elisha, and the guy pops back to life. Exactly double. So that is amazing. Now, there's so much here. What falls from him? A mantle. Jesus goes up. What comes down? A mantle. We receive the same commission. There is something, but there's something wrapped in here I don't want you to miss. This is the Old Testament pattern for the ask. Hey, ask. The one who is going up, who's giving his spirit to you, he says, ask. And our asking stinks. It just does. That's why I'm saying we need the fresh wind to recognize who we're asking. You have asked a hard thing. Have you ever been accused by God for asking a hard thing? Uh, We need to hear more of this. Well, that's a hard thing. Each of my kids has an impossible prayer. That's what we call it. And I remember, uh, who was it? Uh, Hudson's impossible prayer, this is quite a few years ago, was that every public school would stop teaching evolution and start teaching creation. And what was my thought? You've asked a hard thing. (laughs) (laughs) That, yeah, more of that. That's the sort of thing. You see, it's audacious. Even some of you are squirming in your seat going, are you encouraging your son to pray for something that could never happen? Well, guess what? Almost every single thing in the Bible could never happen if God didn't intervene. Maybe I should say everything. According to man, it cannot happen. But God isn't a man in that sense. He is overarching to all the laws, all the rules of this universe. He walks on water. He multiplies fishes and loaves. He is able Do we cry out in our inner man, amen? The lesson of Joash. So Joash is a king of Israel. Not a good king. Okay, now even in this situation, even a bad king recognizes that Elijah was a man of God and that Elisha 
has a double portion of his spirit. And do you remember when Elijah was parting? Do you remember the words, the quote from Elisha's mouth? My father, my father. I don't know, what was it? The chariots of Israel and the horsemen thereof, something like that. Uh, and so it's a specific quote, which doesn't make a lot of sense to many of us, right? Joash knows this. He knows what took place. He knows of the falling mantle. And Elisha is on his deathbed. So who comes in? The king of Israel. And he's like, I'd like a little of that. I'd like a little of what you have. And so we see the story unfold. Elisha had become sick with the illness of which he would die. Then Joash, the king of Israel, came down to him and wept over his face and said, Oh, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and, the hor- and their horsemen. He gives the exact quote that Elisha had. It's only two times mentioned in the entire Bible. One is when Elisha is parting, Elijah is parting. Now Elisha is parting. You almost feel like he thinks it's in the quote. Is it in the quote? I'm going to say it. Uh, maybe this thing will fall on me. And Elisha said to him, take a bow and some arrows. So he took himself a bow and some arrows. Then he said to the king of Israel, put your hand on the bow. So he put his hand on it. And Elisha put his hand on the king's hand and said, open the east window. And he opened it. Then Elisha said, shoot. And he shot. And he said, the arrow of the Lord's deliverance and the arrow of deliverance, arrow of deliverance from Syria. For you must strike the Syrians at Aphek till you have destroyed them. Then he said, take the arrows. So he took them. And he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground. Uh-oh. That sounds like the title of our message. Strike the ground. So he struck three times and stopped. Now let's stop right there. Okay, now some of you know the story, so it's already spoiled for you. As far as we can tell, he did exactly as he was asked to do. Okay, he he said, strike the ground. Now how many times are you going to strike? If you have some arrows, he says, strike the ground. I'm very concerned when I answer that question because I'm going to strike it once. I'm going to be dutiful and obedient, and I'm probably going to be trembling a little, the mighty prophet of the Lord, because I mean, this is a key moment, he's passing away, just said, strike the ground. Oh, I'm going to do it. <clears throat> Joash does better than Eric. He strikes it three times. And I'm thinking, wow, he's overdoing it. Listen. And the man of God was angry with him and said, you should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck Syria till you had destroyed it. But now you will strike Syria only three times. Then Elisha died and they buried him. The Bible's very concise. (laughs) It zooms in on what you need to hear and then pulls back and gives a massive summary of generations oftentimes. What was that? So what we see is a pattern in the Old Testament of an ask. You see Elisha and you see God's favor upon his ask. You see Joash and it's very similar, ironic, ironically, but one is motivated from a different end. And Joash falls short to Elisha's ask. He, we've been given arrows. And God Almighty says, ask, or strike the ground. And we're like, all right. So Eric, says the Spirit of God, are you praying? Yes, I am. Are you praying with faith? Hmm. You got me there, God. I'm praying and I have faith, but my prayers are not coming forth out of an amen gusher. Instead, they're, they're piddly. They're weak. And I feel like just because I have so many of them, they must be covering up for my lack of zeal, my lack of oomph behind them. But it's not the quantity. It's the faith that seems to truly trigger and unlock the treasure chest of heaven and bring it to this earth. 
And that's what God is stirring in me is, Eric, I have given you arrows, and I've said, ask, strike the ground. Don't strike it once. Don't strike it twice. And he even seems to get upset when you strike it three times. If you knew there was a treasure in the earth right beneath your feet and you were given a shovel, God gave you his word and said, there's a treasure, it's beneath your feet, what would you do? You start digging. One shovel full, is that all you're gonna give? Two, three, how many shovelfuls would you dig? You dig until you found it. And the same is true in the kingdom of heaven. You take those arrows and you start striking. When should you stop? Here's my simple way of saying it. When God himself reaches out, grabs your wrist and says, it is enough, well done. You see, most of us strike it and we get weary. There are things in each of our lives, if we were to stop right here and measure this, there are things in our life that we knew to pray for, and when we started out, we started out with vigor. But over time, we've set down the arrows as if God said no. When in actuality, God's standing by saying, my promises are still good. You ready to pick those things up again and start striking? You see, God doesn't change, we do. God doesn't relent, God doesn't hold back, we do. We're the ones that fall short. We have the shovel, we have the promise, but we stop digging. There's entire support groups in Christianity for people that have had three shovelfuls. They're like, God didn't come through, I tried that. And they hug each other. And they minister to each other. Instead of saying, pick up the shovel and get back to it. Get that amen going again. So take the arrows and strike the ground. When you do your praying, don't do it weekly. That, that you need to know there's a difference between W-E-E-K, meaning a time passage, and weekly, meaning <laughs> don't do it without exertion. Don't do it weak. Don't take those arrows of God's word and strike them in prayer with hesitation and bashfulness but strike them to the ground decidedly and strike them until the burden to strike them is relieved. And the spirit of prayer says, that is enough, dear believer. That is enough. It's called praying through in Christian history where you pray and 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 you pray until suddenly the burden to pray lifts and a peace comes upon you. And even though the circumstances in the natural have not changed, you know that something has changed. Remember Elijah? He prayed and he prayed and he prayed on Mount Carmel for the rains to come. He prayed and he prayed and he prayed. He kept sending his servant, go check again, go check again. And then finally, what we could say he prayed through. There's a little cloud in the sky the size of a man's fist. And Elijah says, it's done. I don't see any rain. I don't see any rain, but Elijah knew. He had prayed through. He knew he had struck the ground enough. Now get up, go tell Ahab to get down from this mountain before the rain stop him. There's no rain. It hasn't rained in three and a half years. Hurry up, guys. The rain is coming. It's just a cloud the size of a man's fist. It's coming. You see that burden lifted. He knew the praying had ended. We stop before the cloud the size of a man's fist. We stop before the reality strikes us that God has answered. My motive for sharing this isn't as reproof 
It isn't his correction. It's his inspiration. Fresh inspiration to remind us as the body of Christ how we do business. We are not a defeated foe. We serve the champion of champions. The one who is victorious. The devil right now on this earth may look like he has the upper hand. But we are amen believers. We know who has the victory. We know who has triumphed over sin. We know who has triumphed over the devil. And we need to live, act, speak, pray in accordance with that reality. So today, I want you to allow the Spirit of God to cultivate the amen. To rouse you to action. To draw that sword out of its sheath and to stand firmly once again in the territory that you begin to give over again. Because it's so hard to keep it. It's so hard to keep fighting for things that don't look like they're ever going to happen. You have people in your life that God has burdened you to pray for. Keep praying. You have circumstances in your life that have persisted. You have health issues that seem to be unrelenting and never give way to any reality of the heavenly realms. Don't roll over and play dead. Stand firm on what God has already established. You can trust that your God will bring about a maximum glory. That's his job, though. Your job is to stay consistent in this fight, to not relent. Father, turn on that spirit compressor and blow afresh into our souls. Lift us, rouse us from our flatness. Bring us once again unto the vigor of your kingdom pattern. Lord, I want to acknowledge in front of everyone that I have allowed a flatness to come into my life, even though I didn't know it. But Lord, I thank you for not allowing me to continue in it. My prayers have been soft prayers, not manly prayers. And Lord, I pray that each one of us in this room room would andrizomai. We would quit ourselves like men in our praying. We would be as soldiers in this battle. Father, this is unto you for your glory, your honor, and your praise. Make us a praying church. It's in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, delivered at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without expressed written permission. For more information about us or to help support the ministry of Ellerslie, we invite you to visit us at ellerslie.com, E-L-L-E-R-S-L-I-E.com. Please know that you are not alone in this battle for truth, and we are cheering you on down the narrow way of the cross.